Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Demartini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Oh, my goodness. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. This has been one of the most exciting weeks, I think, of my radio career. And there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, but I want to tell you that uh, we're going to talk about some really cool stuff tonight with my very special guest, Michael Clarkson. I'll, inter- I'll introduce you to him in a second. The Poltergeist Phenomenon. Who doesn't, for- who doesn't remember that movie, Poltergeist? The Poltergeist Phenomenon. A fight or flight component, maybe the spark for the mystery of smashing glasses, Airborne Chairs, and much more with this incredible author. Um, I'm going to tell you a lot more about this in a minute, but I want to thank all of you out there for what you have been able to contribute and your support of the Dr. Pat Show. You know, many of you ask, what what are we doing this year in 2011? You know, we did a bunch of things in 2010, called to connection.com, paying it forward. Well, here's what we're doing. On March 4th through the 6th, We're doing something we've never done before, 30 hours of live radio from the floor of of the Northwest Women's Show. 25,000 women attend this event. And this is the launch of our Global Prosperity Campaign. And so the Global Prosperity Campaign, it's really very simple. If you're tired of hearing about economic downturn, if you're tired of living a life that is less than anything you've imagined, This is going to help all of us raise ourselves up and decide what we stand for. So we did call it uh, our Global Prosperity Initiative because it's about prospering and thriving in all areas of our lives. You know, whether it is health, whether it is relationship, whether it's money, whatever that is, spirituality, it's it's time now for all of us to step up and be part of an incredible shift on this planet. Three days in a row, and we have asked our stations to see if they want to participate in this. So far, WBLQ out of New England is going to be broadcasting all Saturday and Sunday. Just sent an email out to our friends at uh, bbsradio.com, and I'm hoping that Don will help us with this initiative along the way. But this is a phenomenon we're starting and we're going to continue. This is something that's so important to all of us at the Dr. Pat Show. And it's something that you all have asked for. Now, some people have said, how am I going to sit there and do 30 hours of talk radio? Well, when you love what you do, it's just simply about making sure you do it. Tonight, I'm introducing you to somebody that could talk quite a bit about that. Thrilled to have Michael here. He is a nonfiction author and professional speaker. He spent 30 plus years as a print journalist. He's won numerous awards for his investigative pieces, including the Canadian National Newspaper Award twice. 
He was a finalist for the U.S. Healthcare Award in 1995. But beyond all of that, you know, he is not afraid to take on some of the most controversial, tough topics. Why? Because three of his books are on fear. Competitive fire, intelligent fear, and quick fixes for everyday fears. And if you want to get into a conversation about fear, well, certainly today is going to be the show to do it. He's been interested in poltergeist cases for many years. He's uh, had interviewed many witnesses, parapsychologists, skeptics for his book. He's also studied the body's fight or flight system for many years. So today, fasten your seatbelt because we're going to be entering the world of poltergeist. But more importantly, it really is the world that we live in that triggers just about every human fear we might have. And that is when we think about things that aren't normal. Perhaps the term paranormal, perhaps we have another term for today's show. But Michael, I'm so thrilled to have you. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Thanks uh, very much, Dr. Pat. I hope I can live up to that incredible buildup. Yeah, you already have. I mean, this is so cool. I'm one of these folks that has always been fascinated by phenomenon such as this. And as a young child, had a little experience myself. But, you know, let's look at this. Floating beds, smashing glasses, unexplained disturbances, you know, things that all of a sudden you know where they are when you go to bed. You wake up the next morning and, oh, I can't find them. You know, all of this amounts to the question of a phenomenon that's called paranormal. I want to ask you, you know, how do you make uh, sense or not make sense of this idea of poltergeist and the world of paranormal activity? Sure. Well, Dr. Pat, um, first of all, I'm quite skeptical. I was a police reporter for many years and um, sort of reporting on the underbelly of society and had uh, a lot of people trying to sell me things, uh, fool me uh, into uh, printing stories. So I'm, I'm quite skeptical. I think what we're dealing with here is, um, I don't like, like to use the word paranormal so much, but the word super-natural. I think Love we're it. Dealing, yes. Uh, dealing with, I think we're dealing with something that uh, perhaps we can all tap into a little bit, not, not so much as these incredible cases uh, we're going to talk about, but uh, we're all hardwired with fight or flight, and I think there are many supernatural things about our minds and emotions that uh, we just don't understand. But once in a while, they jump up and bite us, or we can actually learn to focus our hormones and uh, come up with some amazing things. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background with the police department, because I think this is fascinating. You know, is it that, uh, and by the way, my my uncle was chief of police uh, in New Jersey, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with hanging around uh, cops, as we call them, so to speak. But, but i got to ask you, I mean, do you think that uh, it, it's tougher for people that are in services like police and fire department to kind of wrap their minds around this? This is precisely, Dr. Pat, why I wrote this book without the police evidence. Uh, I don't think I would have believed it myself. Yes, indeed, the police officers, um, fire officials, um, anyone who's going to be ridiculed when they go back to the station they're not going to put anything on the report that they don't believe themselves. So when um, 51 officers around the world in about 17 cases tell me that they see seen what they think is poltergeist activity, then I, t- I tend to listen. Well, let's let's take a let's take a listen here. Uh, the movie Poltergeist came out. 
And I, I honestly, I have to tell you, I, I don't know about you. Well, you probably had heard the term. I had never heard the term before. And I think, I think for millions of people that saw that movie, um, it was a brand new term. And, and many people watched the movie and still didn't understand the phenomenon or what it is. But what it did, I think, Michael, is introduce us to a way of looking at poltergeists. Um, that became so real. So let's talk a little bit about what they are and, you know, why, why this, this topic is so important to you. Yes. Well, first of all, um, yes, the movie Poltergeist uh, about 30 years ago was quite entertaining, but to me it was all Hollywood. The only thing uh, resembling a poltergeist, I believe, in that uh, movie was the uh, electrical activity in the television set. But it's... Uh, appeared to me that the movie was based on uh, spirituality. In other words, um, the house that the people were living in where the occurrences uh, happened was based, I believe, on an Indian burial site. However, after reviewing 75 so-called poltergeist cases, I believe what we're dealing here is uh, haunted people rather than haunted places. In the cases I studied, uh, there seems to be quite a few common denominators. First of all, maybe we can define what... Uh, I believe is poltergeist activity. Um, I call it recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. It's RSPK for short. And that term was coined by a parapsychologist by the name of William Roll, who is now semi-retired in Georgia. I believe he's the foremost expert in the world on poltergeist activity. And he has studied probably 500 or more cases in uh, 40 or 50 years. So I sort of used his, his criteria for uh, studying these cases, and the um, criteria or the denominators are bizarre movements of objects, noises, and other paranormal effects, or supernatural, as I say, caused unconsciously by a person otherwise known as poltergeist activity. Now, unlike PK, which is psychokinesis, it occurs spontaneously and repeatedly over a period of time. Now, psychokinesis generally involves poltergeist agents or people who are a little bit older and perhaps can focus and use their reported powers in a more conscious way. Now, getting back to the common denominators of these cases I reviewed, they usually involved an agent who was an adolescent entering puberty, and he or she was quite intelligent, above average in intelligence. Then there was some sort of repression or frustration usually of the poltergeist agent by others in the house. Mm. and a high level of stress in the household prior to the start of the activity. In fact, I was going to call my book Psychic Tantrums because I think there are some real mental and emotional uh, quotients and components to these cases. Also, just rounding that out, usually the case will last only one week to several months, so you can see the, the duration is not that long and also, <clears throat> excuse me, also very hard to test and to pin down because of that shortness. And the dramatic events, unexplained knocking, electrical malfunctions, movements of objects and furniture. Occasionally, we'll hear about a case of levitation and electrical appliances working without power. And most, in most of these cases, it's, I would say, more a mischievous poltergeist, more of a mischievous um, intent on the part of the poltergeist agent rather than a harm, real harmful one. Although about, I guess, about a dozen people in these cases have been injured, but uh, none of them seriously. So that's the short uh, or long description 
of what I think a poltergeist is, and I guess you could call it psychic tantrums or perhaps things that go bump in the day because they don't seem to revolve around spirits. Well, you know, this is the kind of thing that's kind of interesting is that, uh, you know, it's almost, I mean, is poltergeist the equivalent to what the Hawaiians call Menahuni? <laughs> I'm not sure. What is Menahuni? Well, it sounds like the same thing. I mean, it's really kind of interesting, you know, what it is we have so come to be open to. I mean, you know, you've been doing this a while, Michael. And I guess my question is, you know, what have you seen change over time? Have we now all of a sudden become so absolutely in awe of, you know, the phenomenon that, that is out there right now? I mean, some of the most popular television shows, movies, I mean, the whole film, Paranormal Activity and now Paranormal Activity, I mean, gross millions of dollars. You know, what is the, what is the fascination that we have with this? I think, Dr. Pat, it's more in terms of entertainment value and escape for the audience. As I mentioned about the, the original movie, Poltergeist, uh, very little based on fact, but big, uh, big seller to the point that they've made some other uh, poltergeist movies. In fact, they're making a remake. Of, MGM is remaking a, a, the original, uh, which is going to come out probably in a year or two. And these TV shows, to me anyway, they seem a little more entertainment and uh, escapism uh, for the viewers than uh, the real-life poltergeist. In fact, I would say that there's still quite a bit of stigma attached to this word in mainstream mm-hmm. society, in mainstream media, and certainly in mainstream science, science, a lot of skepticism. We can go over that now if you want a little bit, but I've got a number of glaring examples of that. Well, let's talk about some of these um, okay. because, uh, you know, we, we see movies like this and we think, oh, my gosh, uh, I'm not going to go to bed at night. I'm not going to look under my bed. Should we be afraid? I think only in rare cases and poltergeist activity does seem to be rare. Uh, certainly it's uh, investigated not very often. We don't know exactly how many cases there are because of the psychic tantrum aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Many of the families feel guilty or they don't want uh, the media or the neighborhood to find out they've got what they think is a troubled child. They don't know what is going on. Oh. And so uh, it's uh, not reported that well. Should we be afraid of it if it's if it's occurring? Yes, I would be afraid of it, not necessarily in a physical sense because I say, it's usually a mischievous um, intent and not right. a harmful one. However, right. I think psychologically and emotionally it can be harmful. In fact, uh, the reverse could be true, that the um, uh, things that are in place for the poltergeist uh, probably are harmful psychologically and emotionally to begin with. In other words, uh, there's some trouble in the family unit, and often this is a troubled adolescent who is going through uh, the poltergeist uh, activity. I have in my, the back of my book a section, maybe you want to talk about this a little later, okay. uh, help, help for the victims. In other words, if you think you have a poltergeist in the house, what you, can you do about it? Yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about that later. Um, uh, but I want to get back to something you just talked about, which you talk about in the book as well. You know, it seems like, in, and tell me if uh, Hollywood's got this right or wrong, but it seems like a lot of the focus and activity that is portrayed, and even on television, has to do with children being the seers. Yes. I think Hollywood, um, it's a little more complex than that. I think in Hollywood, when you've got an innocent child, 
I think it, for lack of a better term, makes a more sexy movie. But I think there is something about the adolescence. In fact, as I mentioned, most of these uh, cases involve adolescents sometimes going through puberty. Now, they've also found that these agents have brains which may be unique. In other words, the young people seem to have a slightly higher rate of epilepsy and schizophrenia. Now, there's one parapsychologist, Andrew Green of London. Now, he said some of the agents suffered from what he called a front temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, that's a brain disorder in which people can suffer blackouts lasting from a minute to half an hour. And during these blackouts, an unknown power of the mind may be released, which can cause objects to move. Now, getting back to the young people for a moment, yes, the puberty angle does seem to be in play in many of these cases. In 1977, in London, England, there was a researcher by the name of Guy Lyon Playfair. Now, he traced the problems of a poltergeist agent, who in this case was an 11-year-old girl, partly to the fact she was entering puberty. Playfair believed that this was related to her pineal gland. I don't, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but I know this, this uh, gland is located at the center of the brain and it's responsible for controlling the release of sexual hormones. And Playfair believed that during puberty, the gland could secrete a type of creative energy. Now, making that link to things which move and manifest the energy manifests itself in the moving chairs is difficult to do, but because we can't test these agents while the cases are going on, then we're left with uh, looking at them later on. And what we found later on is, yes, a lot of them are going through puberty. A lot of them seem to have unique brains. Now, that's all fine and dandy. That's complex enough. However, how do they do it? I think that they subconsciously tap into an energy source which is nearby. The agent is almost always in the room when people like the police officers and the, the family are witnessing these events. The agent is almost always close by, and the theory, one theory is that they tap into things like household electricity, uh, geomagnetic storms if they're in the area, magnetic fields in the area, or energy from the mind-body. Sometimes, Dr. Pat, I think we forget that uh, there's electricity in things like the beat of our heart. Oh, absolutely. Moves, yes, moving along the nerve cells. When you walk across a carpet, your body can pick up or rub off extra electrons, and then, of course, when you touch the door and up zap. So as, as you can see, we're dealing with, a, I think, quite a complex subject, but um, I think I can narrow it down to uh, those components as far as the uh, movements of objects, and then, of course, somehow gravity is temporarily suspended so they can move, and that is called by in some quarters zero-point energy. That's the suspension of gravity. Well, you know, this is um, for a lot of people. They only see, uh, you, you know, the, the the popular discussion of this, of course, which everybody loves to, you know, let's turn that on and let's find out why we're so scared about some of these things. So, you know, what you've been able to do is really kind of separate, you know, what what is really in the fact based on your investigations versus what we sort of sensationalize. And, you know, it, it's it's an interesting role that you've been playing. How do you stay so objective in this? 37 years of print journalism. That'll <laughs> hit you in the gut. You become really um, skeptical. In fact, um, I worry sometimes of becoming cynical. But um, you do have to separate yourself. You, I go home at night sometimes, or I used to go home at night and look in the mirror, and I wouldn't see myself anymore. I'd see all these people I'd written about. So you do become very neutral and that becomes your credibility, doesn't it, as a news, uh, newspaper person? Maybe not an American uh, 
uh, cable TV right now where everybody seems to have an opinion, but um, in print media anyway, that uh, you have to be, your your credibility is based on your ability to be neutral and to try to present the facts as you see them and not try to get too much of your opinion into the case. Yeah, it really is. It really is challenging. I give you a lot of credit for doing that. Um, And, you know, and I I just want to, I want to just want to ask you, I mean, I totally understand why a family wouldn't want to come forth and say this is what they've seen, uh, and, and especially for children. But let's just talk about how the evidence does become manifest. You know, how do we point to, you know, some of the things that, um, that turns into evidence? I mean, you know, your involvement with the police, um, do the police ever say, yes, I'm going to report this poltergeist experience, and they probably don't say that. But mm-hmm. how does the evidence come to bear? How does it come to the surface? And what are some, ca- you know, what are some cases that you've worked on? Sure. Well, it's another reason I started on this project. It had to do with a police case in 1970 in St. Catharines, Ontario. There was this European uh, family. Um, I think it was a man and wife and an 11-year-old boy and his younger brother. And things were going uh, bump in the day. The paintings were coming off the walls and chairs were moving over a two-week period. And they were the family was getting very frustrated. They couldn't find out what it was. They brought the hydro people in. They brought the city workers in, the fire department. And the last uh, line of defense was the police officers because they were starting to worry when the chairs were moving around and glasses were flying. So over the course of two weeks, this entire shift of police officers uh, told the media that they saw they not only saw these things happening, but they made reports on them. And I can, if we have time, I can actually read you a couple of the police logs about this case. Friday, February 7th. Constable Robert Crawford found a heavy bed had reportedly been raised two feet off the floor by an unseen force. It was reported by Mrs. Baines, who told police she had seen it rise off the floor in the boy's bedroom. That was one of the neighbors. Crawford said he rushed into the room and saw the bed approximately two feet off the floor at one end, unsupported. Not believing my eyes, he said, I I summoned another constable who was outside the apartment, and he also saw the unsupported bed. Now, three days later, February 10th, for about the 12th time in almost two weeks, Constable Bill Weir said he saw John Mulvey, that's a pseudonym I'm giving the boy, thrown off a chair. Weir wrote, I attended in the morning and was assisted by Constable Eddie Batarski. While I was there, I witnessed some phenomenal occurrences which I have attached to this report. At 9 p.m., I proceeded to the residence again with Constable Crawford, where we again witnessed some very unusual things taking place. Between the time of the two calls, I contacted Mr. Bradley, the city building inspector. We both agreed that the causes of these weird occurrences was that the boy was at the center of poltergeist activity. Now, Weir's report was later signed and authorized by his commanding officer, Sergeant Buck Taylor. But what Weir did not put on his report was that he got the treatment himself from this unseen force. Another officer who saw some events, Constable Harry Fox, told me this. Now, Weir told Fox that the poltergeist force picked up a chair he was sitting in, and Weir was quite a heavy man, and tipped him on his ass. Now, if this little 11-year-old boy had really done that physically, now that would be a tough one to explain to the boys back at the cop shop, early cop overpowered by 11-year-old. And yet the uh, police officers, I think probably eight of them all together over two weeks, they went back to the police station and filed these reports. And so... 
they uh, really believe what they saw. Otherwise, uh, they would have been up for ridicule and would have lost some of their credibility as well. It really is challenging, isn't it? I mean, uh, you, you know, this is a, a phenomenon. I call it a phenomenon because, I mean, I think, you know, I'm just short of words on this. Um, but this is really something that people experience. Some people say they experience on a day-to-day basis. So what is your experience? I mean, do poltergeists just show up? I mean, we have this idea that, oh, my gosh, they're going to come through electricity. They're going to, you know, they're not like ghosts. They can pop up anywhere. They can pop up in a hotel room. Um, And so I think that, I think that, you know, it's kind of interesting to have a conversation as to what you've discovered. Yes. Well, it's possible any of those things could happen. However, okay. as I say, in the 75 cases I've, I've uh, researched, uh, there mm-hmm. seems to be uh, some several complex components that work here. Number one, usually it's a child going through puberty, and mm-hmm. then they usually have unusual brains. They seem to be able subconsciously, without knowing it, tap into some uh, nearby energy sources and also uh, make gravity suspended. And... Uh, of course, before that, we have the household where there's a high level of stress, usually directed at the young person who seems to have no other way of uh, expressing himself or herself except through this incredible phenomena. And um, that's why I say in a lot of these cases there was repression and the youth said this is the only way they know how to... to uh, get attention, and they don't even know how they're doing it or why they're doing it, but um, things are going uh, bump in the day. So it's not a very common thing, I don't think, and it's not something I don't think you see every day. However, it is reported throughout the world, uh, Dr. Pat, and one of the points of evidence, I suppose, is that these cases are reported independent of one another, and yet they all seem to have the same dynamics. So I think that is a form of evidence. But after all is said and done, I'm not saying in my book that I have 100% evidence that poltergeists exist. I remain skeptical, but I think there's enough suggestive evidence, especially when I hear police officers talking like this, to at least for us, mainstream society, mainstream media, mainstream science, to look at this a little closer. We may not get to the end of this in our lifetime, but... If we just turn our back on these um, these super dash natural things, then um, then we'll never uh, we'll never get ahead. We'll we've got all these these uh, mind emotional resources, and we we don't have an idea how to tap into them. But if we turn our back on them, and we allow a stigma uh, to exist, then uh, I think resources for research funds, which is happening already, uh, will start to dry up. And there is a stigma attached to it because, as you mentioned earlier, I've done a number of books on fear. Yes. Fairly credible books, I think. However, once I started writing this book on poltergeist, one of the researchers not long ago looked back at my other books and she reviewed uh, a non-poltergeist book by saying, well, you know, uh, Clarkson is now doing a book on poltergeist, so I'm paraphrasing her now, but what credibility does he have left? Mm. So you can see the risk I took and you can see the stigma that's attached to this subject. There's obviously a stigma in general about the paranormal, but when you come to ghosts uh, and particularly to poltergeist, well, people just don't know enough about it, and they perhaps they don't want to know enough about it because uh, it takes an open mind, I think, to even suggest that these things exist. 
Yeah, but you know what's really interesting about this, Michael? You, you know, and boy, I'll tell you, I would challenge anybody out there that doesn't have a reaction to it. I mean, what's kind of interesting about this is, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting in your living room, right? And, you, you know, maybe you're watching. So I, did, I did a workshop here the other day. So this is kind of interesting. Yvonne Oswald came in and did a workshop here with my team. And we were in the middle of, she was doing hypnosis, and we were in the middle of a, a very, very powerful energetic moment, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, something in the kitchen crashes down. Now, it's not something that was kind of hanging off a ledge. You, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yep. It, it, it was so not the thing that should have crashed down, period. There was no one in the kitchen, uh, and no one could explain what happened, right? You know, it wasn't any dish. It, it, it wasn't like it was dish jiggling around, and there wasn't any vibration. So we didn't have an earthquake here. And these are the kinds of things that happen, and they happen to us every day, and you know, people that people know this, even even the most skeptical people on the planet have to wonder how certain phenomenon shows up in their lives that they can't explain, whether it's a glass moving across the table or something dropping and you can't explain it or something missing and you think you've lost your mind. Um, and so I guess what I want to ask you is, you know, do we not keep our minds open to this because we're afraid of of being classified or being ridiculed, or are we simply scared to death to 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 open our minds to such a such a phenomenon? Yes, I think both uh, both things you just mentioned are true. Also, I think we're a little bit afraid of our own power. Sometimes we don't realize until uh, this rarity pops up that what powers we actually do have. You mentioned earlier that I've been studying fear in a fight or flight for many years, and yes. I've just come to discover myself the powers I have, and I think the powers that everyone has hardwired into us, but we do tend to be afraid of them because they're fear-based. And I think most or all of our stress in our society is what I call fear energy. In other words, it's our emergency fear system, our fight or flight system, been hardwired into us for millions of years. We have this caveman response. And so when if uh, you're on the phone and you're talking to a client or a boss and you get nervous or you're angry, you feel this tension in your shoulders and you wonder where it comes from. Well, there's only one place that comes from. It's your fight or flight system kicking in. It's your blood Mm. leaving the small muscles going to the big muscles to fight or run away. Now, that's easy enough to see in uh, as it manifests itself in physical things. Once in a while, we'll hear about the grandmother picking up the car off the screaming child because she has this rush of energy. Now, that's uh, directly related to fight or flight. Athletes talk about this all the time. But that that's easier to uh, detect than the mind power fight or flight. Uh, again, police officers involved. 1988, I started studying fear because I went to this coroner's inquest, and these police officers who had been in a gun battle began talking about this slow motion effect they said that the suspect holding a gun turned around very slowly and started to fire at them. It seemed like they had more time to react. But other people got up on the stand who weren't immediately involved with the event and said, no, things happen in regular motion, so the cops look like liars. But actually then they weren't because an expert got up and said this is a phenomenon, part of the fight-or-flight system known as tachypsychia. It's Greek for speed of the mind. When any of us are challenged, uh, usually life-threatening situations, 
our body goes through a whole series of changes. Usually it's very physical, but sometimes it is also mental, especially when you're highly trained, like police officers or athletes. This tachypsychia is like a video camera on fast forward, so it seems like things are happening in slow motion, but they're not. But what I think is occurring is that nature gives us the action in a highly stressful situation, one frame at a time, to help us get out of this situation. Now, that's all fine and dandy, but how do athletes do it? I think they do it by trial and error. When athletes are involved in these fight-or-flight situations, we call it being in the zone. That's almost an overworked cliche these days, but I've come up with a formula to get myself into the zone more often than not. In fact, um, I think I've been in the zone probably about 40 times in my life, whether it's in sports or deadline pressure, some sort of challenge. And most athletes will tell you they've been in the zone maybe 10 or 12 times, the top athletes. But that's because I have learned, I think, to manipulate my hormones and cause some amazing uh, mental effects. Now, it's a little bit of a leap to say I could cause things to move my mind over matter, but I'll give you one example is that I've had some what I would call out-of-body experiences. In other words, Mm -hmm. uh, one time I was in Los Angeles covering a Magic Johnson, the basketball player's comeback, and there were reporters from all over the world in a small media room. I was running out of time. I was choking under pressure to do the story, and I got angry at myself because the Toronto Star, the paper I was working for, had spent all this money for me to come there, and I thought, look, Clarkson, you're going to choke, you're going to panic, you're going to waste all their money. In that moment, I can't prove this, but I changed my emotion from too much fear to anger briefly. And I think what that did was change my hormonal chemistry from too much adrenaline, which can flood flood the body during choking periods, to more proactive hormones like dopamine and testosterone. I know ladies don't like to hear that word testosterone, but it can be a useful hormone. I think that night it got me going. It got my uh, uh, my, my uh, interviewing going. It got my typing going. And at the end of the day, I seem to have more room and time to operate. I think it was sort of a tachypsychia moment. And I've had a number of those moments. When I left one newspaper after 10 years, I was told that I'd never missed deadline. And I'd been doing sometimes eight or 10 stories a day. And I think I tapped into this energy. But, Dr. Pat, the most important part of this is anger is a very destructive emotion. You have mm-hmm. to stay in the anger mode maybe two seconds of the very most. Whatever you're doing, whether it's... A, you're challenged in uh, sports, whether you're challenged in a big project at work or uh, if you're under deadline pressure. And the most important part after you diffuse this anger is trying to channel these uh, emotions, this fear energy into whatever it is you're doing. Focus on the task you're doing, whatever skill it is. With me, it was reporting. With me, it was shooting a basketball. If you think about it too much, it will all blow up in your face. You've got to get out of the way get out of your own way at the very end, and you can't think about it. Some of these occurrences, what I had, I didn't think about it till two to three days later, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, what happened back then? Well, the trick was I got all hyped up, but I was able to channel it and get out of my own way and trust my own abilities. And in those moments, being under pressure, using this tachypsychia, these fear hormones, can actually make you perform better under pressure than you could without the pressure. Now, most people choke under pressure, so this is a, this is quite unscientific in a way, but I know in my own life that I have been able to perform better under pressure than I could without. 
Oh yeah, you and me both. I mean, I yeah, I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> I will tell you, Michael, that you're you're definitely uh, you're making a, a very very true statement. I don't think it's for everybody, but I you know I know for myself that uh, there's something about that that just makes me accelerate uh, in a lot of different ways. I just want to tell our audience that uh, we're talking about the poltergeist phenomenon. Great, great conversation with this author and expert, Michael Clarkson, joining us here today. Michael, before we continue, I would love for you to let people know how they can find out more about you, more about your books. Uh, is there a website we can be sending folks to? Yes, it's www.michaelclarkson.com. It's being updated so they could reach me at my email, michael.paul.clarkson at gmail.com. And the books are available uh, at Borders and uh, Amazon.com. Um, well, thank you so much. I want to make sure folks know how to find out more about your work. I mean, I, I think this is completely fascinating. Um, and yet for somebody like me who's had some of this experience, I understand the challenges of this. I also understand the challenges of what happens when – you have something that you are so involved in like you are and like I am with the kind of radio I do. I mean, you know, we're kind of an anomaly to be doing talk radio about inspiration mm-hmm. and other things. Uh, you know, you're really, yeah, believe me, I know they must be looking at you sideways because I know that they look at me sideways. <laughs> it, but it's all part of the journey. I mean, I, I love the idea of being able to catapult forward. And by the way, I want to just mention to you that, you know, us ladies, we got a bit of testosterone ourselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, you're catching up to men and things like uh, negative things like heart attacks and stress. Be- yeah, because uh, you're becoming more competitive, women in general. There was a, there was a woman, uh, a, a long-distance runner by the name of Mary Decker Slaney in the oh, Olympics yes. about 20 years ago. She yeah, was eventually banned because her high testosterone levels. Then the, the uh, executives, the uh, managers, uh, the rules makers thought that she must have been uh, taking this in externally. But I think she was uh, creating more testosterone in her system through mental uh, techniques. Before a race, she would not look at her opponents. She would build up anger towards her opponents and look at them as non-humans. Now, this is unethical. I wouldn't, you know, to your listeners, I would not say try this. But my point is that testosterone can be built up through things like competition and uh, us against them. So it can be, like anger, a destructive uh, feeling, a destructive hormone. But if we can channel it into positive ways, that's the trick. Now, Dr. Pat, you mentioned that people like me, people like yourself, uh, maybe we're looked at sideways by the general population. And I agree to a point because there are some people who I would term as adrenaline sensitive. They seem to be predisposed at birth to handling their hormones better than other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're, we're called uh, type A people. We look for ro- the roller coaster rides. Most people don't do that well under pressure, but some people, I think it's partly genetic. Now, you can develop it on top of that. But on the other end of that is something that uh, has been called a worry gene. was found about 15 years ago. It's a small gene, and everyone has it. It uh, pumps out serotonin, which is almost opposite from, from some of the hormones I just talked about. It's a very soothing hormone, which is released when we feel irritable, when we feel stressed out. And they found that this worry gene is actually bigger or smaller in some people than others. So some people seem to be predisposed to worrying. So as soon as I heard that, I stopped judging my mother-in-law. 
I get it completely. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't, um, I, I think that, you know, for those of us that, that, uh, we're called, we live on the edge. Uh, you know, you'd be, it, people be looking at you and saying you live on the edge. I mean, to be out there. But I think that, you know, we can look at so many people right now in our society that we could point to and say, oh, they're on the edge. And yet we talk about them in terms of ways that we aspire to either be like them or have the courage to be like them. And, 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 you know, let's talk about some of these people that are out in the world that are even, that are even willing to call themselves parapsychologists. Let's take that one on. You know, I know a little bit about psychology. <laughs> and, uh, not sure what my peers, uh, think of me. I know that, uh, when I first, uh, graduated from, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good school with a doctorate in psychology and I had a picture on my website and I had two hands out. You know, my two hands were out, and in each hand, I had two round objects. The dean of my school thought that I had crystals and pretty much, uh, what is the term, blacklisted me? Is that yeah. the language? Black yeah. Gold. Yeah. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, they were actually thunder eggs that I had dug up from California. It doesn't matter, but you can see how something like that, you know, categorizes and changes people. So the fact that we can say the word parapsychologist I think is a huge leap. Tell everybody what that is and who are your faves? Yes. Well, a parapsychologist is somebody who studies the paranormal. And yes, you're right. It's um, I think it's gaining a little more credibility in, in the mainstream. The most famous parapsychologist as it relates to poltergeist, as I mentioned earlier, is Dr. William Roll. Yeah. There are a number of others uh, Andrew Nichols in Florida, and a chap called uh, Stephen Mara in Manchester, England. There is a neuroscientist who does not call himself a parapsychologist, and he's an interesting case. I'd like to talk about him for a few minutes. He's in Canada. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. His name is Michael Persinger. He's a neuroscientist, and he comes at these things from a couple of different angles. First of all, a number of years ago, he created what he calls the God Helmet. Now, it's a helmet he puts on people, and it uh, emits electrical signals. And he says when people in his lab have this helmet on, they tend to hallucinate more than others. In other words, they come out of the helmet and they said they've had a God experience. They've seen God. They uh, may have seen UFOs. They may have seen their dead relatives. So he thinks that they, if uh, certain parts of the brain uh, are electrically charged, it can give us hallucinations. That's all well and dandy. But he keeps an open mind to the point that he has studied a Canadian woman, I can't use her name, again, the stigma, she have to give her a pseudonym, we'll call her Sarah. It's an ongoing case. She's in her mid-40s, which makes it unusual to begin with that she should have poltergeist activity in her mid-40s. But she is trying to change it into psychokinesis, in other words, PK, where she has more conscious control over moving her things with her mind. That's what PK is, really the definition is mind over matter. Anyway, Sarah went to Dr. Persinger, and he put said he didn't put the god helmet on her, but he tested her brain, and he thought that she had uh, her brain was very sensitive to its environment, more sensitive than he'd ever seen a brain. Now she has this pinwheel that she's been trying to use to move with her mind, and uh, she feels her poltergeist energy is very negative. In other words, it manifests itself when her husband seems to get her upset. Things move huh. in the house. She's she's very upset with this. So she's been trying to transfer this into a more positive energy, uh, PK, and she has this little pinwheel made of uh, 
pencil and a little piece of paper on the top of the wheel, and she focuses tightly on this and claims she can move this with her mind. Now, she gave me a demonstration on Skype not too long ago, and there was the wheel going around and round, clockwise, counterclockwise, for 20 minutes. It probably could have gone on forever. I told her eventually to stop. Now, I can't prove she didn't have a little wire, uh, which I couldn't see on screen, but I'm skeptical, and uh, I was quite impressed. However, she took her little pinwheel to Dr. Persinger, could not make it work in the lab. She felt she was under stress. Perhaps athletes like Tiger Woods can't always perform under pressure. They have bad days. She went back to the motel that night and said, um, do you mind if I call you if I feel under less pressure and I feel I can make this pinwheel move? He said, sure. So, indeed, she gave the call back, but he wasn't. He was busy, so he had to send a young intern out there. And the intern reportedly saw the pinwheel move, and I thought, well, this is good. I'll put this on my book. Dr. Persinger, can you please give me the name of the young intern? He said, by all means not. If this young man is trying to get a job and you put his name next to Poltergeist in the book, he is going to be blackballed for the rest of his life. He will never uh-huh. get a job. So right. there you go with a stigma. And Persinger himself says he, he doesn't get as many government grants as he used to because he says he's studying the Poltergeist phenomena. But there is also another interesting case, uh, the same case, I'm sorry, with Sarah, the woman with the pinwheel. She's Uh actually studying to be a scientist, so she says she's caught between two worlds. She thinks she's got this unusual energy, and she's also trying to study it. So uh, she told me that uh, she did her uh, BSc or MSc, and now she's working on her Ph.D., she said because she had these experiences, she said intuitive knowledge wasn't enough for me anymore. I wanted to know why things are the way they are. Somehow this energy turned me into a scientist. I'm pretty much stuck between two worlds, both figuratively speaking and literally. She said that if she had not had her experiences, she would likely be a disbelieving skeptic. She said, I don't like being associated with the New Agers or people not willing to test their own experiences. Rather... I want to bring science to these things because a lot of people need answers. I think my experiences can hold up to investigations. Sometimes I struggle with wanting to be a scientist while slipping into scientism out of habit because it feels safe and familiar. Now, if this woman could come forward with her uh, name, unfortunately she can't. I think probably we could study her even more closely. But she is going back to Dr. Persinger and trying to recreate this in front of him. You know, we we sort of have gone, um, sometimes I like to think we've come a long way. I mean, you know the ridicule that uh, certain folks had in terms of bending spoons and so forth. And, um, and, and, And yet there are people that actually believe that the government isn't or or hasn't experimented in phenomena such as this or other phenomena for, you know, their own purposes. So it's it's kind it's really quite a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, here we have countries and governments that would love to harness this energy, right? And yet, at the same time, you know, can't openly embrace it. And uh, this is really the phenomenal. I think that individuals go through. This is really what happens. So I guess the question is, what should people do? I mean, if you are like this woman or if like yourself or, or others and they're listening to the show, 
or they have a child that maybe experience or talking to an invisible friend or what, or, mm-hmm. or seeing things move, whatever that is, you, you know, where, what road do they go down? Yes. That's a difficult one because, um, as mm-hmm. I say, most times the family does not want to get involved. They, because there's a psychic tantrum, because the repression in the family seems to be one of the components, then they don't want publicity. But if they can somehow find a uh, respected parapsychologist in their area, sometimes that's, uh, that's hard to do. Maybe they can start with some respected uh, research groups on the Internet, like the Parapsychology Foundation, www.parapsychology.org, uh, things like that. But, um, yes, you're right. It's, um, I, I think, though, to get back to your earlier comment, the U.S. government actually and the Soviet government have from time to time dabbled in this, but they couldn't come up with enough concrete evidence that mind over matter exists. So they didn't even go as far as to make any of their findings public. Now, there was one famous case, and your listeners can probably find a little bit about this on YouTube, a video of a woman called Nina Kulagina, that's K-U-L-A-G-I-N-A, in the 1950s and 60s in Russia. She had uh, reportedly initially some poltergeist activity in her apartment, interesting enough so that the Soviet scientists, including two Nobel laureates, tested her, often in closely controlled conditions. They claimed she could move things by focusing tightly with her mind. Now, she was sometimes put into a cage to prevent trickery, or she was forced to move things placed in a plexiglass cube with video cameras rolling. And if your listeners uh, go to YouTube, they may see some of this, this uh so-called evidence, and no one apparently ever caught her cheating. But you're right, if we could really uh, come up with the uh, the answer to this, I mean, we could become uh, Lex Luthor and uh, take over the world. Well, you know, I mean, I really think that all of us have had to look our, look in, uh, look in the mirror at ourselves in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's hard to live with something that seems and is so real for an individual and yet be faced with the disgrace that may come from actually uh, confronting yourself in terms of your family and your friends and your work. I mean, you know, this is, this is not a conversation for the lighthearted. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not. And also that's compounded with the fact that many of these occurrences we've talked about tonight are hit and miss. And so someone like Yuri Geller, who has been known for oh. spoon bending, he yep. went on the Johnny Carson show, and he was quite confident, but he couldn't make it work on the Johnny Carson show. So there, in front of a worldwide audience, uh, he's, he's ridiculed, and he loses a, a lot of credibility. Now, there may be something to his powers, but it's not, it doesn't always happen. We, it's, it's hit or miss. And uh, However, we can, I think, sometimes see things like Tiger Woods. Now, this may be a little bit of a jump, but not only Tiger Woods in his prime and Jack Nichols before him in golf, uh, they're obviously very skilled and very trained, but there could be an argument to be made that sometimes with an important putt, they actually will that little ball into the hole with their mind. We can never prove that, and it won't happen um, over and over again, but there are things we can't explain, and it makes it frustrating then that when we think we have these abilities, we can't make it happen all the time because when it doesn't, then we set ourselves up to embarrassment and then we uh, we turtle and uh, then we don't develop our skills. Well, you know what's even more interesting than this, I think, Michael, and thank you for joining me here today, Michael Clarkson, everyone. You know, we didn't waste a hot second to embrace the movies, uh, The Matrix 1, The Matrix 2, and The Matrix 3. 
And I think probably the original movie, The Matrix, uh, 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 people were so amazed and willing to embrace not only conceptually the spiritual aspect of that movie as some thought, but the phenomenon itself. I mean, the whole notion, I mean, the scene where he visits the Oracle and there are children sitting around and some of them are, 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 are bending spoons and others are, are holding balls in the air without holding them. I mean, many people didn't blink about that, Michael. Why do you think it's easier for us to embrace the phenomenon through Hollywood than it is in real life? Do we see Hollywood as not real life? I have lost Michael there. Yes. Oh, okay. I think, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Hollywood. It, I just um, I have a section on Hollywood in the book, but uh, I just think it's more entertainment and um, more escapism. And then th- those are valid things. I mean, we need those things in our lives. So we we live often stressful lives, but to uh, link uh, link them to real paranormal cases is sometimes a stretch. There there have been very few movies that have been made on. Uh, traditional or real poltergeist cases as uh, far as I can see. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, are you excited about the book? Are you excited about, you know, uh, what you're kind of unleashing on the world here? Yes, I'm excited about it. Uh, but, it, of course, it's tempered by things like the book review I got where the woman, the nationally syndicated woman, said, uh, you know, he's losing his credibility. So it's a risk, but... Uh, that's uh, that's the exciting part, I guess. There's going to be some people who take the chance and look at their own lives, as you say, and see what abilities they have, perhaps because of things like my book, perhaps because of things like your show. But we are taking a chance. And unfortunately, in my many interviews I've done so far for this book, very few are with mainstream media. So until we can get uh, more into the mainstream media, then... Uh, I think things like research funds are not coming forward. I think we've got to to make it a little more popular. And unfortunately, it seems like laboratories are cutting back a bit the government grants. Uh, There was a laboratory, Princeton University, which closed the doors uh, a few years ago. And there's also fraud involved. Whenever there's fraudulent cases, they seem to get a lot of play in the media, and it sort of debunks legitimate cases. There's a a magician called... Amazing Randy, he calls himself a skeptic, but I think really he's a professional debunker. He will show up at these things and make a big huff and puff, and it's all entertainment, and he'll just poke holes in a case and find the one little hole in the case and say, see, I told you so, and uh, that will get a lot of media attention. So then Mm. uh, the supernatural, the paranormal, again, turtles a little bit and goes back into the shadows for a moment. Yeah, you know what? He 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 should probably turn his energy on the real fraud. Um, you know, we happen to call that Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think there are going to be challenges every time we turn around and look at something. I think you know when you look at a guy like Dr. Emoto, and you know you, you kind of think about where he is today. I mean, really, are you really measuring sound and snowflakes and water flakes and water? And the, yes, he is. But, you know, when you go back in time to his original research and, uh, and you know, taking a look at what the challenges were to that, you know, I think all in all, 
you know, you were on the forefront. You happen to be, you know, carving, you know, cutting down the tall grass is what you're doing. And I think so many people in this area, you know, have done this. And I congratulate you on that. I want to thank you for joining me here today and, and for really being the scientist and the skeptic, you know, that enables more people to take a look into some extraordinary phenomenon. Thank you, Michael, so much for joining me here today. And I've had fun. Thank you. And I want to tell everybody, I mean, you know, uh, you can go on and Google poltergeist phenomenon and you'll find uh, a number of different places that have done reviews that are very, very, very praising and other things. And just take a look at, you know, reviewing these 75 cases and what what all of this has been about. You know, and you can always go to michaelclarkson.com as the website. So I want to thank you tons for joining me, Michael. Thank you. Any last personal message for folks tonight? No, as you say, look in the mirror. We have more mental powers than we think we do, and uh, give them a chance. Let's rock on. Thank you all for tuning us in and turning us on. If you missed any part of this great conversation with Michael, go to our website, drpatlive.com. That's drpatlive.com. Or just Google Dr. Pat, and we're going to pop right up there on number one. And check it out. Download the interview. And remember, everybody, live life full out. We have got the capability to do extraordinary things. Let's do it together. We'll see you next time on the show. Oh, someday, not somehow.